Welcome to the question here at I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, COVID cliffs. We're now in a new phase, one that is very different from the darkest days in our fight against COVID. Why did the federal government suddenly end the key COVID support programs this weekend? Who's eligible for the new targeted programs? Can legislation actually be passed in time once Parliament resumes to actually get these in place? And then vaccine passports? As Canadians look to start traveling again, there will be a standardized proof of vaccination certificate. Will the federal government's new vaccine passport be accepted internationally? Should unvaccinated Conservative MPs actually be banned from Parliament? And who's in and who's out in the new cabinet to be selected Tuesday? We're joined by Employment Minister Carla Qualtrough and all that. Then we'll get opposition reaction from Conservative MP Tim Upple and NDP House Leader Peter Julian. Plus, candid Kretchen. It was a business deal. It was a card that he was playing in his negotiation with the Chinese. And we paid the price. Why did the former prime minister think the Trudeau government took the wrong track with China and the two Michaels? And what message does he have for Premier Jason Kenney and Alberta after that key vote on equalization? We have a wide-ranging conversation with the 20th Prime Minister of Canada, Jean Chrétien, ahead of the release of his new book. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Final pivot, that's how the finance minister described the decision to end most supports for businesses and workers and move towards these new targeted programs. $7.4 billion worth by May of 2022. So after 20 months of COVID, is this the end game? We are moving from the very broad-based support that was appropriate at the height of our lockdowns to more targeted measures that will provide help where it is needed. So here's what's new. For workers, the Canada recovery benefit is now over. Instead, the government is proposing a Canada worker lockdown benefit, which would provide 300 bucks per week to workers who are under lockdown. And that would be available until May 7th of next year. For eligible businesses, two new initiatives will replace the rent and wage subsidies, the hardest hit business recovery program, that just trips off the tongue, and the tourism and hospitality recovery program. Meantime, the highly anticipated details behind the national vaccine passport have been unveiled after months of waiting. Turns out each province and territory will be responsible for providing a standardized pan-Canadian vaccine passport. Some provinces have issued them already. But can Canadians have confidence that the passport will be accepted internationally? And what about these newly announced support benefits? Will they need parliamentary approval? Yes, but can they get that in time? And will they be enough to get Canadians through the rest of the pandemic? Let's find out. Joining me now is Carla Qualtrough. She is the Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion. Uh, Minister, great to have you back on the program. And I've got to start with these new benefits. You need legislation to pass these targeted programs. The House doesn't resume until November 22nd. They haven't tabled the legislation yet. The opposition hasn't seen it. Why is the government so confident that you can pass these in time? Well, Evan, we've had a lot of practice at doing this, and we've worked very closely with opposition parties over the past uh, 20 months to make sure Canadians had the benefits. There was no disruption. And we will have the ability to retroactively um, deliver these benefits if there is a week or so of gap. Um, but quite frankly, the Prime Minister is in conversations with opposition leaders. I've actually been um, reaching out to my critics, and, and I think we can do this, and I think we can do this for Canadians, and we intend to. You, you know, it's a bit ironic that your party called an election because of the toxic 
a nature of Parliament, and now you're so confident that in three weeks you can all get it done, which does throw in a question why the heck we needed the election in the first place. But I've spoken to the NDP, and we're about to speak with the NDP and the Conservatives. They're furious that you didn't extend these programs. They feel that you've abandoned people. They say, we have to examine the legislation, so they, you may not get it done in three weeks, Minister. Yeah, and I, I think it's false to say that we're leaving people high and dry, Evan, because we're really not. We, we're, we're actually responding to a very different economic and public health situation today than there was a year ago um, when we put in place the recovery benefits. So uh, be very clear, the sickness benefits ongoing, the caregiver benefits ongoing. Uh, we are going to support workers through this lockdown benefit. So if you can't work, your job isn't available to you because of a lockdown, you'll get the same level of support right. you did under the CRB. Never mind these additional business supports for, right. for businesses more writ large that will help workers. One of the keys is eligibility and definitions. L let's look at the Canada Worker Lockdown Benefit, which replaces the CRB, only for workers impacted by a government-imposed public health lockdown. So is a lockdown a full lockdown? Or is a lockdown you know, limiting capacity at certain businesses who say, we're essentially locked down compared to my neighbor? How does that work? Well, of course, we're, we're going to be working on those details, but um, the, the premise is workers who are un unable to work because of a local lockdown anytime between October 24th and, as you said, May 7th, will be eligible to get this $300 a week payment. It will be driven by how a, a province or a region characterizes, of course, the lockdown. If they declare a lockdown, right. um, certainly if it's a complete lockdown, uh, what, what you're talking about is a partial lockdown. And right now, I th the thinking is a complete lockdown. The Tourism and Hospitality Recovery Program, again, let's talk about eligibility. What is defined as a tourism business? Who qualifies as a hospitality business, right? Yeah. That, though, what's the criteria there? Because I bet you're going to get bombarded with, I'm in the hospitality business because I have customers. Yeah, absolutely. So what, um, what we've announced so far is that hotels, restaurants, festivals, travel agencies, tour operators, trade shows, um, obviously, those things fall squarely within the, the confines of tourism. Hospitality, as I said, is restaurants. Um, we're looking at, you know, a more solid definition of a qualifying business. Certainly, it's also there's also going to be an option on a case-by-case -case basis. The finance minister was out yesterday saying, yes, of course, trade shows and tour operators and, you know, restaurants. So it's a very big bucket. Um, yeah, and we're just going to have to make sure that around the edges, to your point, we're very clear with businesses as to what what um, what we will allow within and without. Because that's you know that's what we're trying to do with these programs is is clarify as much as possible right. you know what the eligibility criteria are. Well, in the end, Minister, did did you overshoot? Did your government overshoot in trying to move quickly? Uh, and in fact, things like CRB and others. Did they end up suppressing the workforce? And that's why you know, lots of businesses are saying, we can't find workers. Did you guys end up overshooting in the end? I very strongly believe that we did not. I've been watching religiously the labor force data over the past 20 months, and, and I've seen that when there are jobs, people are taking them, even when those jobs paid less than the CERB or the CRB, because people are motivated to work for a, a bunch of reasons, including the, the security of knowing you have a job next month when you might not have a benefit next month. And I think that we managed to strike a balance between, you know, the labor shortages were there before, and I've heard these arguments, um, and we now need to recognize that the best way to support businesses is through these more active measures like I described. The other element uh, are vaccines, and there's lots of vaccine mandates. We'll get to the, the, the vaccine passport in a minute. Uh, but 
if someone, if a worker, we're seeing this in the healthcare sector, people that don't get the shot, if they don't have a medical exemption, they will lose their job. They will, they will lose their ability to work. My question to you is, if you don't get the vaccine and you don't have a medical exemption, are you, would you qualify for EI? Yeah, so parking, of course, the medical exemption and the duty to accommodate in those circumstances, if the employer has a clear policy with clear consequences, um, non-compliance could, of course, lead to dismissal, which, if dismissed, typically you're not able to access EI benefits. So, um, as a matter of course, the, you know, there will be extenuating circumstances that will be looked at on a case-by-case -case benefit basis, sorry, but typically, no, you would not be able to access EI because basically you are not being, um, you're not complying with the condition of your employment. There's now a travel vaccine. I know the federal government's piggybacking on the back of the provinces and we've got that watermark and you can download it. Not all provinces are getting it done, but they've all agreed to get it done and I get that. Um, has the federal government done the work to make sure that that's accepted around the world in other countries so it's actually useful so people don't show up at borders and they say, what the hell is this? Absolutely. So first of all, this this model of the standardized uh, proof of, of, of vaccination was the best way forward for us as a government. Instead of building a new system and creating a database with everybody's vaccine information, um, the idea of piggybacking on existing systems made sense moving forward. And of course, as we've been doing this and building this and working with provinces, we have been working with international organizations to ensure that these, what are called kind of internationally proof of vaccine credentials or PVCs, um, really will be accepted uh, internationally. This is the same thing we do for passports. Um, we, you know, we make sure they conform to international norms. Every uh, sorry, countries work together to ensure that they uh, that, that, that other countries will accept our PVCs, and we are very confident that, um, that they will accept it. And, you know, we know that countries are accepting all different forms. And again, standardizing this means that when you see something from a Canadian, it will always look the same from every Canadian. Well, you're uh, the Minister of Employment now. On Tuesday, you might have a different job. Some people are speculating you'll be the Minister of Defence. Would you take that job? I would take any job the Prime Minister offers me. It's such an opportunity to be at that table and helping uh, guide our country forward, working with my colleagues, whatever whatever the Prime Minister sees fit. He, he's, I think he builds great teams, and I've been very lucky to be a part of them. Okay, well, maybe we'll see you here. On, well, you, well, we will see you here on Tuesday, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Minister Carla Qualtra, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Nice to talk to you, Evan. Take care. All right, still to come on the program, vaccine showdown. Will there be a fallout over this vaccine mandate for MPs, and does the opposition support the newly announced pandemic benefits? Conservative MP Tim Uppel and NDP House Leader Peter Julian join us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So is this really the beginning of the end? On Thursday, the Liberal government announced it will be winding down emergency benefit programs that have been in place since the beginning of the pandemic, entering into what the Deputy Prime Minister is calling a new phase or the final pivot. Our emergency support measures were always designed to be temporary, to get us through the crisis. Thankfully, as the Prime Minister has just pointed out, we're now in a new phase one that is very different from the darkest days in our fight against COVID. The Prime Minister also announced a standardized international proof of vaccination. Check this out. 
We are very confident that this proof of vaccination certificate uh, that will be uh, federally approved, uh, issued by the provinces with the uh, health information for Canadians, uh, is going to be accepted at, uh, at uh, destinations worldwide. The announcement comes as the federal government faced pressures to introduce more targeted benefit programs that help economic recovery and show federal leadership on proof of vaccination for global travelers. But will the opposition support these new targeted benefit programs? And how will Parliament work with vaccines mandated for MPs to work in the House of Commons? So there's lots to deal with. Let's now bring in the opposition reaction. Uh, joining me now is Conservative MP Tim Uppel and NDP House Leader Peter Julian. Gents, good to have you on the program. I want to start with you, Mr. Julian, because the NDP has classically been the Liberals' dance partner on legislation uh, in the last Parliament. So they've now shut down as of midnight last night uh, those key benefits like the CRB and the wage and um, salary benefits um, and rent subsidies. Are you satisfied with the new targeted benefits announced and will the NDP support the legislation needed to get them in place? Well, Evan, I think uh, you're, you're identifying the huge problem with Mr. Trudeau waiting uh, more than two months before he actually convenes Parliament on November 22nd. As you mentioned last night, 880,000 Canadian families that were depending on the CRB were cut off arbitrarily with only uh, uh, a few hours' notice. And this is a very cruel and callous act when you think that uh, whatever the Liberals are proposing, number one, has to come to Parliament. But number two, uh, the, the so-called workers' lockdown benefit, the, no regions qualify for it right now, which means 880,000 people are left without no means to put food on the table or to keep a roof over their head. And, and so the, the NDP has been calling for Parliament to come back uh, early. Jagmeet Singh has been very clear about that. Mr. Apple, the Conservative support cutting this stuff off. The Liberals say, look, we've recovered a million jobs. All the jobs are back pre-pandemic. We don't need this. Does the Conservative Party support the Liberal position to move towards these targeted measures? Listen, I mean, uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has already said that the CRB should come to an end. And um, just because it is contributing to uh, some of the inflation, contributing to some of the labor issues that we're having right now. And so we're pleased to see that the Liberals have, uh, have, have taken our lead and uh, have, have followed through on this. But uh, as for the legislation itself, we haven't seen it yet. Neither have you. And so I think uh, what's important is let's get the details. And that's why, you know, we should be in Parliament right now. We should be there. We should be debating this legislation, taking a look at it, examining it in committee. This is a lot of money. Again, there's a lot of money that the Liberals are spending, and for Canadians' sake, we should be going right. through it with a fine-tooth comb to ensure that we are getting the best, most value for this money. Well, it's a lot of money. You're right. $7.4 billion by May. But, Mr. Apple, let me just go back to you. Um, but they're, they're essentially doing what the Conservatives have asked for, so I'll just ask again. There's three weeks to pass this legislation. Will the Conservatives support it? Listen, yes, we agree in, in general in, 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 the, in the direction that they're taking, but you already have organizations like the Canadian Federation of Independent Business that says, hey, there's some details here that we're hearing that are a concern to us. So let's hear those concerns. Let's address some of these problems. As you know, some of the programs that the Liberals announced before and kind of table dropped them, there were a number of problems with them where we had to go back and try to fix them and fix that legislation. So let's get it right right now. And that you know, the way to do that would be if we were in Parliament. And unfortunately, uh, the Liberals have decided to wait a couple of months before we get back to work. Okay, but so we're coming back, Mr. Julian. And again, I, maybe the Liberals are calling the NDP bluff because 
Jagmeet Singh continues to say, look, I will not bring down a government and force an election. So uh, in the end of the day, is this all an you know, empty bluster that the NDP will complain and say, we don't like this, but in the end, you'll do what you've always done and just support the Liberals and get make sure these supports are in place before the holidays, and, and that's it. Evan, we, we've never blindly supported the Liberals, quite the opposite. In fact, when you look at our track record, look at Jagmeet Singh's track record over the last two years, the $2,000 a month served, the student benefits, the supports for seniors and people with disabilities, the sick leave provisions, the rent subsidy, the wage subsidy, those were all NDP largely provoked initiatives uh, where the NDP successfully improved or initiated by pushing through in a minority parliament to what was the best way to act. So uh, we'll continue to push and, and fight on behalf of, of regular Canadians that have been hard hit by this right. pandemic and obviously abandoned by this government as of last night. Okay, so we'll find out if that passes. Let me go back to you, Mr. Uppel. Uh, in order to get back into parliament, everyone now, all MPs, mm -hmm. have to be double vaxxed. Your party didn't like that. I spoke to um, Blake Richards. Uh, one of your MPs who said, oh, yeah, I don't like that at all. Uh, we don't support that. Now Mr. O'Toole said, okay, I will respect the ruling of Parliament, the Board of Internal Economy, and, and we'll do that. So let me ask you, will all Conservatives end up being double-vaxxed now in order to come to Parliament? And, and why the change of view on this? I think the important thing is that we want to be here for Canadians. Canadians sent us here to do a job. And if that you know, means that uh, we have to follow these rules set by the uh, Board of Internal Economy, then, then we will, uh, as Aaron said, that we will comply by the rules, even though we think that there is a, a better way to do it and, and one that uh, is not so divisive way? and, and, and I'm just really trying to become figure, a political I'm, issue. I'm just trying to figure that. I, 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 know, I know the line is that it's not a political issue. Look, it's, of course it's a political issue. Vaccine mandates are inherently political. Because but the Liberals I'm, continue to make it a, a political well, issue. Well, well, sir, to be fair, over 80% of Canadians and 84% uh, have a, a, at least one shot. Um, why is it so tricky for the Conservative Party to look at the vast majority of Canadians and not say, look, we're like you, we're going to get the shot? Why can't you mandate that for your own party and get to work? Why does there need to be an exception for Conservative MPs? I know the fact is that we are like them. We we are saying that you know vaccines are important. It's an, it's a, a safe, important tool to fight against the pandemic, and, and you know and, and we encourage people to get vaccinated. So how but many? So for, how many? How many conservatives are, are vaccinated? Why, why don't we just say the number? Just just to, how many? Because when I go to a restaurant, they ask me if I'm double vaxxed. If I go to a hockey game, they ask me. They'll ask you. They'll ask Mr. Julian. They'll ask every Canadian. So I'm going to ask you: How many conservative MPs are double vaccinated? I actually don't have that number. But Why? we do think it's important to get vaccinated, and we have said that we will follow the rules to come to the parliament because we want to be there to stand up for Canadians to do the job right. that they sent us to do. Okay, so you're saying that all the MPs will be double vaxxed by the time Parliament resumes on the 22nd of November? What we have said is that we will follow the rules set out by the Board of Internal Economy. Peter Julian, good enough for you? Um, well, I'm going to answer your question, Evan. Every, every single NDP MP has been double-vaxxed, and we believe this is an important public health measure that uh, MPs should be setting the example, not trying to uh, get around the rules. And uh, I'm glad that Mr. O'Toole seems to have said that uh, very clearly Conservatives will respect what is an important public health measure. Uh, MPs cannot be part of the problem by bringing the virus across the country as we travel so much. MPs have to be setting an example. Gents, i got to leave it there. Uh, Tim Upple, Peter Julian, uh, both of you, always a pleasure to see you, and I'll see you back here in town, I guess, uh, November 22nd. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.
Coming up on the program, Jean Chrétien unplugged. Why does the former prime minister think Canada blew it on China? And what concerns does he have about the economy? We go one-on-one -on -one with the 20th prime minister of Canada, Jean Chrétien, on his new book. Stay right here with Question Period. Behind the scenes, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien thought Justin Trudeau and his team blew it on the fight to release the two Michaels. As he writes in his new book, My Stories, My Times, Volume 2, they had a view that was, quote, utterly incompatible with mine. In fact, Mr. Chrétien even says that Christian Freeland had not read the legislation on extradition. Mr. Chrétien viewed the whole situation as a political problem. He says they saw it only as a legal one. In the end, Mr. Kretchen was ignored, and eventually, of course, the two Michaels were released. But at what cost? For Mr. Kretchen, the deterioration of the relationship between Canada and China is a big problem, one that Justin Trudeau needs to fix. Building a relationship with China has long been part of Mr. Kretchen's political life, but that's just part of the long career of the man, with Justin Trudeau about to put together his cabinet for his second minority government. What lessons can he learn from Mr. Kretchen, and what are the biggest challenges Canada faces now? Well. I had a chance to sit down with Mr. Kretchen to discuss all this and more. Mr. Kretchen, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Oh, it's fun to be with you again. Part of your legacy, part of your, as the Prime Minister, was your relationship with China, and it's a big part of the book. And you're critical about how Canada handled the two Michael situation. You write a lot about it, that Christian Freeland hasn't read the Canada extradition laws, and you said that the Trudeau government made a mistake, that they thought it was a legal situation and you were giving advice that it was a political situation. Um, did Canada mishandle that situation? You know, it's difficult to blame only the Canadian government. But uh, when Trump, a few days after Madame Wong was detained, he said if they solve it, you know, well, if we have a deal on trade, we'll, sell, we'll stop. So that's a sign that had nothing to do with the law. It was, for him, in his mind, it was a business deal. It was a card that he was playing in his negotiation with the Chinese. And we paid the price. But, Mr. Kretschmann, the Trudeau government's view on this was they rejected your advice because they said your advice would reward hostage diplomacy. And wouldn't it? You know, it's always very complicated. We were the victim of, it, of the government of America. America. The well, yes, United States forced us, and the government decided to go along with it because they thought that they had no choice. I thought they had a choice. But, you know, they decide. For me, I gave my advice. And I do that, I did all my life, I spoke up my mind. On that, I was not alone. There was a, a lot of people who wrote a letter of the people of the highest level in the legal minds in Canada had written a letter about it. But were they right in the end? We didn't have to reward China's, uh, the two Michaels got out. I just, I You just... know, but the problem is it was, you know, it, it was resolved with exchange of prisoners, as I proposed. And there was a delay of three years that was not needed. That's my views. They have the right to have a different view. Right. You know, for me, I just say, I said that publicly. 
And it's at that time, nobody noticed. Now I write about it because when I wrote these articles is when during the time, the date is there. You know, circumstance changes. Now it's, I'm happy, it's over. I think it was um, a lot too long. I'll ask you one last question on this because it's a delicate political situation to both deal with the superpower, but also what's the line where you're appeasing them? the line between appeasement and constructive engagement? You know, you have to see the situation and you use your best judgment. You cannot a priori conclude what you will say. There's all sorts of circumstances in different times that lead to different conclusions. And when you're prime minister or you're a government, you have to make difficult decisions. It's never white or black. So you have to decide and you live with the consequences. I made a lot of decisions during my 10 years as prime minister and my government too, that you know, a lot of people did not agree with us. And I, we did it. Mr. Chrétien, we are living through a time of reconciliation. You, you are the former minister of Indian affairs. You talk about it obviously in your book. Um, now we're, there's the recovery of the unmarked graves at the residential institutions, as you know. Uh, I know that you were involved in the white paper. This is a big part of your life. A lot of folks say you and Pierre Trudeau should have shut down the residential school system then. Instead, you it know, wasn't. It, What's your view of it now, and do you, ha do you take any responsibility for that? They were there since a long time. And, you know, when the, the last one was closed by me when I was prime minister, we had to manage the problem at that time. You know, education was a very important thing for natives. When I became the minister, there was only a dozen, I think, Indian people graduating from university. Thousands and thousands are graduating every year now. Education is the key. And in those days, in the isolated area, that was the system they had. But they don't regard that as education. They regard it as cultural genocide. No, no, but you know, I'm telling you what is the, the, the situation. And uh, we were not in form of any abuse at that time. So that was the situation. And uh, for me, you know, I offer with my white paper to abolish the Department of Indian Affairs, to abolish my job. And the Indian Act? Yes. And now the people complain we have Indian Act. They refuse that. You know, I had to back down. Don't you remember that? I do. After there consultation, was, was... when people were arguing that we had an apartheid system, having reserved for them an Indian Act and a Department of Indian Affairs and a Minister of Indian Affairs. I said, you're right. You know, it is an apartheid system. I will abolish that. And the reply to me is going to be a cultural genocide. Last question on this. Justin Trudeau has apologized, as you know, for the situation. But I, you know, I, I just I'm ask not you, here to talk about the... No, but would the, you... The, no, I'm not the Monday morning quarterback, okay? And I'm not the mother enough. Ask me a question about... Well, well I wonder, because you're, just quickly, but has you been asked to apologize uh, for any role in that? Not that I remember. And would you apologize? Uh, you know, don't ask me. I didn't... It was not a problem. I were asked other things, but not by the natives on that.
My preoccupation was not solving the problem of the past. It's nothing I can do. It was to build the future. And at that time, it, it was my concentration. Mr. Kretschia, this country has come through the pandemic, and we are in a financial situation that is unprecedented. When you became the prime minister, you also We were in a mess, and we got out of it. What advice does this, what, what do we learn from your time when we're in a, the same situation financially? Every country of the world faced this very difficult problem. And, you know, how they will manage it, it's not my problem because it's completely different. But it, we, we will have to face it. The reality will hit and will face it. But they have no other choice. The Brits have done the same thing, the Americans, the French, the Germans, and how they will get out of it. It's all a thing that we did not believe. You remember uh, the Socred were proposing to create money. Yes. You know, the Socred of Real Kawet. I had to fight it. Now it's what we're doing. We're printing money like crazy. Are you worried about that? Yes. Why? Because, uh, you know, it's unusual. We're moving into a, a dark alley. But we'll have to go to the end of the alley. Is it necessary to do it? They call it, you know, the fat printing money or you know, quantitative easing, all these bank terms, as you know, as a former minister of finance. Are you worried about the inflation, the cost of doing this? Because there's a lot of folks that say, if we don't do it, we're toast. You know, they had no choice. But they knew that there would be difficult circumstances coming. Mm. And with the pandemic, like we had, it was so unusual that they have done something that is unusual. A lot of the economy, economists, you know, so-called experts, had to swallow very hard mm. recommending to do that. Right. But I'm not the prime minister. I'm not running the government. I had a, a good team with me, and we started in 93 in a terrible mess. And when we quit, the economists said Canada is cool. You remember they had put the moose with rosé glasses in the eyes, you yeah. know, they, they, when I left. Because we had, been the, had become the example of the world. The UN used to proclaim Canada the best country in the, Canada, in the world to live in when I was there. So I, you know, and my, with my team. So, you know, I did it. I did what I had to do and they do what they think they have to do. Okay, coming up, we continue our conversation with the former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Does he have a message for Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta? And what about his special relationship with the Queen, as the Queen is experiencing some major health issues? All that and lots more with Jean Chrétien. Next, stay right here with Question Period. In Canada, it's the political equivalent of hugging a skunk, constitutional negotiations. Usually, it just leaves a bad stench. But after holding a referendum last week, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is clearly hankering for another constitutional hug, this time over equalization. That's the complicated formula where the federal government distributes taxes to the have-not provinces. Is this about to disrupt the country? Look, no one knows more about referenda and the Constitution than the former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. He was the Justice Minister who brought in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Prime Minister during the 1995 referendum that almost split up the country. And now, with the publication of his new book, he has some strong words for Jason Kenney, but he's also got some kind words for his old friend, Queen Elizabeth, who has recently been hospitalized. So here is part two 
of our extensive conversation with the former Prime Minister, Jean Chrétien. In your book, you write about the referendums, the famous two referendums, I remember them well, but now in Alberta, and you write about Jason Kenney in the book, there's just been a referendum on the question of equalization. And he wants to get rid of the equalization formula. I should point out, as you know, that he was part he of He cannot do it. It's a waste of time completely. Because you need a change in the Constitution. Yes. And to do that, you need seven provinces to agree. Good luck. But the sentiment is real there. There's a oh. sense of alienation. You, don't, you think Jason Kenney's exploiting that? You know, I... You know... You know, of, when you're in Alberta, you know, it is almost her culture to, of complaining. I was there, but I would talk frankly with them. I had five members of parliament elected in Alberta, yeah. you know, better than uh, anybody else uh, for three elections. And, uh, you know, but they, 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 but they are not the one complaining. You know, in Quebec, they complain a bit, don't they? In the maritime, they do, don't they complain? You live with that. In a system like that, you know, I used to say this. If you're a mayor, you have a problem, what do you do? You blame the provincial government. If you're a provincial government, you have a problem, what do you do? You blame the federal government. So we cannot blame the queen anymore, so once in a while we blame the Americans. You know, if you can pass the park, it's not bad as a technique, but, you know, but the reality is, you know, you're there, for me, the best thing to do is to put the puck in the net. How did you know, and you write about it, three majorities, how did you know when to step aside? What was your moment where you said, I'm done? I mean, you'd served a long time, but it's hard to leave. You know, I had decided at the beginning I was to be there only for two terms. Yes. The proof of that is after my second election, I started to build my house on the Lac des Pills in 1998. So it's because I was to leave uh, the politics in 2001. And, uh, you know, and as you read in the book, Aline got a bit unhappy and she said four more years and she got a standing ovation from the staff and including myself and I ran a third time. Why I wanted to quit? Because you have to know when to quit. But circumstances sometimes force you to stay. For me, you know, I, we felt that I had to stay there. And happily, as I wrote in the book, you know, uh, we would have gone to war in Iraq because within uh, Harper gave a speech against me in New York because I'd said no to the war in Iraq. Yeah. And in the caucus, the group supporting Paul Martin were giving me difficulties because they were telling me that the Americans would punish us. But I did it anyway. And, uh, you know, and the, but it was one of the reasons when I ran for a third time and it was my best. Your relationship with the Queen and Aline's relationship is pretty beautiful. She's just been in the hospital. You know, she's 95. That's yes. an extraordinary relationship you have. How did you get such a... What's your message to her now after your long years of a special relationship? But to keep doing what she's done extremely well. You know, she is a very solid uh, person and, and she understands her role well and, and she is a pleasant person. And, and she liked to laugh, too. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, we had... A, and she was speaking in French uh, most of the time, and, and the Queen Mother, too. Because the Queen Mother could not speak English before she was five, she told us, because she has a nanny who was French. 
And, uh, you know, so when we arrive at Eden High, the Queen Mother will come and talk to us to practice her French. And I made a joke that the Queen was speaking in French with me because she could not stand my English. So, you know, and uh, we had fun and, uh, and she was very gr gracious. She gave me the order of merit and, uh, you know, I'm thankful uh, because it's according to the film uh, The Crown. Uh, when she gave the order of merit to Margaret Thatcher, she said to her, don't forget that this order is selected by me personally. Yes. So, I'm still thankful. Mr. Kretschan, congrats on the new book. Thank you for your time, as always. It's a pleasure to see you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, it's always a pleasure. All right, after the break, pandemic pivot targeted pandemic supports, a new cabinet, the inflation problem. How will the government balance all these priorities? Well, the former NDP leader Tom Mulcair joins us as a special guest on The Scrum. We break it all down. Stay right here with Question Period. So while Parliament is taking its sweet time to return, MPs are not back in the building behind me till November 22nd, the challenges for the Trudeau government 3.0 are piling up. A new cabinet has got to be sworn in on Tuesday. Who will be the main players there? The pandemic benefits wound up this weekend. Will the government be able to get these new targeted measures in place in time? And how will the government deal with the growing problem of inflation? To answer all that, and more, let's bring in the scrum. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief is here. Stephanie Levitz, parliamentary reporter with the Toronto Star is here. And our special guest is former NDP leader and CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair. Okay, good morning, everyone. Tom, come on, let's start with the programs because that affects millions and millions of Canadians. Tom, federal government ends the emergency pandemic benefits. Um, they, they're moving toward this pivot towards the targeted uh, benefits. Do you expect that they'll be able to get enough government support in three weeks when Parliament resumes to get all this through? What do you make of the politics of all this? I'm not worried about them getting enough support, but can you remember when $7.4 billion was real money? Now it's a rounding error. It's, it's chump change. And Mr. Trudeau basically assumed that he and Christia Freeland could announce that and not really have Parliament behind it. So I think he has to go back decently because he said the whole election was an emergency. We needed to get this type of stuff done. And then he's taking more than two months to call Parliament back. So he's got to get it back in order. Okay, Joyce, the politics of these, um, these programs, it's kind of interesting, right? This weekend, the big ones come to an end. Targeted ones are coming. What do you make of how they're trying to find that balance between ending the support and continuing where it's needed? Let's say it, they're playing political games. Um, uh, they announced it this week, $7.4 billion. Like Tom says, now, Bufa, seven point, you know, what a snoozer. It's a lot of money. Uh, no technical briefing, no details uh, before the announcement. They just threw it there, uh, surprised everybody with the $7.4 billion. And then they're going to go to Parliament with only three weeks to discuss, really, what they said was so important to discuss, and that's why they triggered an election in the middle of a pandemic, was to talk about the after sort of the recovery time. What do we want to do after this pandemic or as we walk out of the pandemic tunnel? And here they are playing political games on the backs of the people yeah. they called to go and vote for them. Uh, Steph, I mean, the NDP are already furious that the benefits weren't extended. Uh, meantime, the government's saying we've, we've recovered all the jobs, a million jobs, everything looks great. We're in the final pivot, as Christopher Freeland said. 
and then inflation is at an 18-year high. So they've got, they got all sorts of different crosswinds going. What do you make of it all? Yeah, I mean, to, you know, to the point of the other two panelists, it, it would have been nice if some of these ideas had been perhaps shopped around during the election. Here is what the Liberal government would like to do with their majority. Here's where their thoughts are at with these pandemic benefits. And, you know, one of the things that I think Krista Freeland made a point of saying the other day when they announced them was that the government needs to be nimble. And that's a bit of a terrifying thing here. I mean, we've seen around the world, Evan, like even as vaccination rates go up in other countries, suddenly a wave of the pandemic swamps them anyway. And they're back considering lockdowns and all of these things. And so one of the uncertain things about these benefits, especially as it relates to this particular lockdown benefit that is supposed to help people if they cannot go to work because of a government mandated lockdown. Well, what does that look like? We've never really had across the board lockdowns before. How easy are these benefits going to be for people to access? Steph, you uh, mentioned vaccines and Tom uh, ruling this week that in order to work in the House of Commons, people, including MPs, no special status there, will need to be vaccinated. Now, the conservative uh, whip originally came out and said, oh, we don't like this. This is crazy. We did. Then Mr. O'Toole kind of said, OK, we're going to accept it, but we don't agree with it. Uh, is there a vaccine problems remaining for conservatives or are they pivoting away from that? Mr. O'Toole seems intent on handing Mr. Trudeau a stick to hit him with. And it's the <laughs> same vaccine thing that was so difficult for him to handle during the campaign. He should have been clear, showed leadership from the beginning. After you take several days to come to the right decision, you still look weak. So it was a lose-lose for O'Toole this week. He's only got a couple of people in his caucus who are really anti-vaxxers. That we and know he should of. have just said, too bad. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know, Joyce, right? Because he won't. We, the conservatives keep saying, don't ask uh, who's, who's vaccinated. It's a privacy issue, even though if you get on a plane, a train, if you want to go to a restaurant, you want to go to see a hockey game, they ask anyway. What do you make of this, Joyce? Well, I mean, this is conservatives wanting their parliamentary privilege to inoculate them, so to speak, uh, pardon the pun, against all the rules that every other Canadian and a majority of Canadians have agreed with. Look, what, 85%, let's say, 85% of Canadians have at least one shot, 83% have two shots. Look, they're not reading the room. What I don't understand what ground they are staking. We don't know if it's two MPs, two conservative MPs, or a couple of dozen of MPs. Like they are playing mystery with an issue that most Canadians, most Canadians have made peace with vaccines. We know that this is the way out of the pandemic. I don't understand the political strategy behind this. Steph, let me uh, get to what you all want to talk about because it's our favorite parlor game cabinet okay tuesday they're going to unveil a cabinet okay this is trudeau 3.0 uh we all know there's lots of speculation who will be in what role and so you guys can throw out your your guesses but it's cabinets are consequential because it's going to really set the agenda for trudeau 3.0 so what are you looking for and what are the key things that trudeau's got to juggle here steph so one of them is that he lost three female cabinet ministers in the in the last election, and he does remain committed to gender parity in cabinet. So the 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 ultimate question right off the top is which three women are joining the cabinet. And he's got some new faces that were elected in the election. He's got some faces that used to be in his cabinet for one reason or another aren't anymore. So that's definitely one thing to watch for. I think going ahead into Tuesday. Yeah. Well, by the way, three. There's actually three who lost, and then Catherine McKenna who who left. So there's four there. Tom, what are you looking for? Oh yeah. I think that Mr. Trudeau made a lot of promises to progressive Canadians, especially on climate change. So I think that he's got a very experienced hand, very capable hand in Minister Wilkinson, who was at Environment. 
I can see him moving over to natural resources. He knows everything about the field. He's from Saskatchewan. His writing's in BC, and he's just spent years working, and he's a really dedicated worker on the details of the climate plan. There's somebody who's in cabinet now, who's being underused, who's highly respected by environmentalists across the country. That's Stephen Gilbo. I can see him playing a larger role with regard to climate change and environment. Well, we know defense, I, I mean, Joyce, I, I, nobody expects Harjit Sajjan to stay at defense with the fiasco of the military. What, what are you looking for on Tuesday? I think that the uh, biggest obligation for Justin Trudeau is to put new faces in that cabinet because now we went through an election and we have the same number of more or less of seats as we have. Mm -hmm. So the same composition in the House of Commons of before, the same prime minister, same opposition leader, really nothing has changed. So if he doesn't change his cabinet, people are going to scratch their heads and go, okay, so he wanted right. a, an election to change things and here we are back at square one. So I think that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, is it a renovation or a rebuild? Maybe right. we'll find out. Uh, just, Steph, last thing. I'll tell you one thing that we've all noticed in the last week, and I know Tom Mulcair wrote an article about this. Christia Freeland is always beside him on these major announcements. Now, I know she's the only one that's already named to cabinet. She keeps her job as deputy prime minister and finance minister. I think, is there a strategic shift there, Steph, that they're like, okay, Mr. Trudeau's overexposed. Time to introduce the next one. The biggest crisis facing Canada in the months ahead, I mean, climate, of course, being at the top of the list, but really it's about the economy, right? I mean, we've seen inflation numbers, as you alluded to, Evan, off the top, going through the charts. There's a lot of people concerned about their jobs, their homes, the cost of living is going up. This is going to be the key theme for all levels of politics in the next six to eight months, and it's Krista Freeland's file. And she's the one who can get up there and dive into the, the depths with reporters on the details of these benefit programs. And I think the message he is trying to send, I mean, yes, she's already been named, of course, but that also he has an eye on the bottom line and he has an eye on the economy because he's been viewed by a lot of his detractors as not having his eye on that and, and having his eye on some other things that don't necessarily, while they matter in the grand scheme of things, to the day-to-day -day lives of Canadians aren't as important at the moment. Yeah, I, you never know if it's Batman and Robin or Batman versus Superman. You just don't know if it's a rivalry or not. Uh, Joyce Napier, uh, Steph Levitz, Tom Mulcair. Great to have the three of you on the program. Thanks so much. All the best, Evan. That is Question Period for this week. Thanks all of you for watching. If you get a chance and never take it for granted, hug your loved ones. I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV's Power Play, and we will be back here in seven short days. Thanks for watching.